Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Professor Ali Atai of Zaytuna College. Welcome back, sir. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as-salam, Paul. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. Fantastic to see you again. Um, for those few people who don't know who you are, I'll just mention that uh, Dr. Ali Atai is a scholar of biblical hermeneutics, specializing in sacred languages, comparative theology, and comparative literature. And at Zaytuna College, uh, he has taught Arabic, creedal theology, comparative theology, Sciences of the Quran, Introduction to the Quran, and uh, Seminal Ancient Texts. Uh, he received his MA in Biblical Studies from the Pacific School of Religion and his PhD in Cultural and Historical Studies from in Religion uh, from the Graduate Theological Union. And uh, he's a native Persian speaker and can read and write Arabic, Hebrew, and Greek, and I should say English as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, now, today, uh, Professor Ali Atai uh, will do uh, a very, very serious moment, of course, perhaps in history, actually. Um, and he's going to do a presentation on the theological underpinnings of Israel's current strategic military engagement with Palestine and also uh, a much needed overview of Judaism. So over to you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brother Paul, again. It's an honor to be back on blogging theology, albeit during these obviously very, very difficult and strange uh, times. I, I want to begin by reading um, a passage from the Torah, actually. So it says, And it came to pass when Moses had finished the writing of the words of this law in a book that commanded... Uh, uh, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it inside of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, you have been, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And how much more after my death? Gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death, you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days. 
because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. That's Deuteronomy 31, 25 to 30. <clears throat> yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm calling this presentation the, as you said, the theological underpinnings of Israel's current strategic military engagement with Palestine. <clears throat> but in more uh, simple and explicit terms, um, how does the Zionist government of Israel religiously uh, justify the genocide of Palestinian civilians? <clears throat> now, before I get into what I think is happening in, in Palestine right now from a Jewish theological uh, perspective, I want to do a couple of things. Though Number one, I want to give the audience an important reminder. Uh, and then number two, uh, give the audience a quick introduction to the religion of Judaism. Uh, so we'll look briefly at what's called the Shalosha Asar Ikari Emuna, the 13 principles of Jewish faith, as articulated by the great theologians, uh, uh, philosopher and polymath, uh, Maimonides, and his famous uh, Mishnah Torah. Uh, but first, an important reminder, um, in the Quran, uh, God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, he describes the Ahlil Kitab, right, the people of the book. We might even translate that as the people of the Bible. He describes them in a very nuanced way, right? It's, it's not black and white. Laysu sawa'a min ahlil kitab. Right? They're not all the same. So we don't lump everyone in the same uh, category because that's not what God, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does in the Quran. Uh, he, he says in Surah Al-Ma'idah, You'll find the most severe among mankind uh, in enmity towards the believers, meaning the Muslims, to be the Jews and the idolaters. Okay. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he also says, Musa And and from the people of Moses is a is a community that guides by truth and thereby acts with justice. Uh, you see. So this this is why the, uh, with this issue of Ahlil Kitab, the Quran really requires uh tadabbur, like a deep reflective um, and penetrating engagement. Um we have to look at the Quran holistically and be very careful about blanket statements. We have to be very careful about uh, demonizing other faith communities who are just trying to live their lives, worshiping God uh, and, and loving their families. Uh, there are many Orthodox and conservative Jews, religious Jews, who vehemently oppose Zionism on both theological uh, and moral grounds. Uh, they accuse Zionists of hijacking Judaism, in fact, uh, rather than the uh, you know modern state of Israel being a Jewish nation, they call it an abomination. Hmm. And these are these are Jews. These are these are good, decent, upright people. These are people of Adala. These are people of Tzedek, right? Uh, in in Hebrew, uh, many of them um, won't even look at a Zionist in his eyes, out of principle. I mean, I've seen this myself. Wow. They have a, they have a motto. They say Yehudi Lotzioni, which means a, a Jew is not a Zionist, wow. right? So they actually anathematize Zionist Jews. So these are anti-Zionist Jews who organize, you know, events and lectures and protests uh, to educate and inform the masses about uh, Israeli atrocities mm. committed uh, upon the Palestinian people. And oftentimes they even atten uh, attend um, Islamic uh, conventions and major events. You'll see them at conventions. Uh, so these are good people and we stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Judaism, you know, is, is a beautiful, spiritually rich um, an ancient monotheistic religious tradition that has a lot in common with Islam. Uh, so I wanted to make that, you know, clear right off the bat, you know. Now, there are extremists in every religion. There are Muslim extremists, of course. We've been hearing about them constantly for over 20 years from the Western media since 9-11. Uh, 
But there are also Christian extremists and Jewish extremists. There is something called radical Judaism. Um, and it's about time for us to learn the dangers of mm -hmm. radical Judaism. The Zionists in power in so-called Israel right now are Jewish radicals. They are motivated by religious zealotry. Make no mistake about that. And I'll come back to this uh, term. But okay, so let's do a quick overview of the religion of Judaism. So, so Judaism is a religion bound to its history, right? It's a religion whose uh, theology was dramatically affected by its history. Uh, you will not understand Jewish theology without understanding Jewish history. Uh, so the Exodus, the end of the Davidic monarchy, um, the destruction of the Second Temple, uh, Jewish life in Christian lands, Jewish life in Muslim lands, the Holocaust, all of these major events in Jewish history led to significant uh, theological thought and revision. Um, our main textbook uh, here at the college when we do our section of Judaism is called Judaism, History, Belief, and Practice. And I know, Paul, you have a, a copy. Yeah. I, could, uh, I have you because uh, when I visited your great college, uh, uh, I purchased this and heard you lecture uh, using it, actually. Nice. So I do recommend this, folks. Uh, get hold of a copy of it if you can. Published by Rutledge Press. Right. Yeah. Daniel kahn Yeah. I mean, two-thirds of his book covers Jewish history, 350 pages, as opposed to 100 pages for beliefs and about 100 pages for practice. So, so Jewish history is extremely important. Now, sometimes Jewish history conflicts with secular history because traditional Jews believe that the Bible stories are true and accurate, right? For example, the Exodus, and we've mentioned this in the past, but just to quick it, quickly say it again, uh, most historians only affirm what's known as a minimalist historical kernel of the biblical exodus. Um, this is because secular historians are very skeptical about the details given in the Bible, the numbers given in the Bible in particular, like 600,000 men of fighting age making exodus. It just seems so highly uh, untenable. Uh, the other reason is because miracles are the least plausible explanation for things by definition. So modern historians simply don't consider them in their method of historiography. I mean, secular history is all a game of naturalistic probability. Uh, and for more information on that, uh, people should watch the podcast that we did yeah. uh, on history of the crucifixion. Um, however, most historians do affirm that his name was probably Moses uh, because no Israelite would invent this name for their hero. I mean, it's an Egyptian yeah. name, right? Why, why would the Israelites give their hero a name in the language of their enemies, in the language of their enslavers? Uh, well, they probably didn't. That was probably his name. Uh, so in the book of Exodus, interestingly enough, there's a false etiology that's given for the name Moses because the author of Exodus or authors of Exodus, they found it embarrassing that their hero was given an Egyptian name. So, so Moshe does not mean drawn forth in, in Hebrew, as some Christian lexicons uh, suggest, as the book of Exodus suggests. Uh, drawn forth would have been Moshu uh, grammatically as, as a passive participle. The name Moses or Mos means born of in ancient Egyptian, right? So like Tut Moses, right? So means born of Tot, the, the god Tot, the god of magic. A Moses means born of Ah, the moon god. Ram Moses, right? A Ramses, born of Ra, the sun god. So Moses means born of an unknown god, right? The family of Pharaoh who raised Moses did not know the name of the god of the Israelites. Mm. Now, now, Jewish history, from a Jewish perspective, has been in a word, tragic, okay? To use another word, catastrophic, calamitous. Why? What's the theological reason, according to Judaism? Well, it's because Jews have largely failed to live up to their responsibility. Now, what was their responsibility? So the Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, were chosen by God to bring the light of Yechida, monotheism, Tohid, and Tzedek, and justice, 
to the goyim, to the nations. And they see this as a duty, not a privilege. And, and the Quran says in this vein, Ya Bani Israel, O children of Israel, remember the favor uh, that I favored you with and that I chose you above, the na- above all nations, right? Uh, the, the poet said in a very short couplet, how odd of God to choose the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but God did. Why did he do that? Uh, the Quran says, Wallahu yakhtasu bi rahmatihi ma yasha. God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he chooses for his special mercy any whom he wills. Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, right? In the Hebrew Bible, also known as the Old Testament, also known as the Tanakh, these are interchangeable. Oftentimes, the entire nation of Israel is called servant in the singular, Evid or Abd, or just Yaakov, just Jacob, as if the nation is one man or one body. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's this idea of, um, in Judaism, of collective responsibility, but also collective punishment from God. Uh, And as they say, the higher the station, the higher the expectation, the more profound the punishment, right? In the Islamic tradition, uh, so the good works of the pious are the sins of those who are nearest, right? In other words, if you've been favored by God, uh, but disobeyed God in spite of the favor, then your punish- punishment will be more severe than someone who never had that favor to begin with. So this is how the tragic history of Israel is explained theologically. Um, now, the great Tanahi confession of monotheism is in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Right, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it continues, Ve'ahafta et Adonai Elohecha bekol levavacha uvekol nafshecha uvekol meodecha. And you must love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. So this is called the Shema, right? This is like their Shahada. To hear something, right, uh, in the language of Scripture means to obey, to submit. So God is Echad, God is one. The rabbis point out that the word Echad is three letters, Aleph, Chet, and Dalet, which is the first, the eighth, and the fourth letters, first, eighth, and fourth of the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hei, Vav, Zayin, Chet. So, so, so Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet and also the first letter of the word El or God. So one God, the first without a beginning right? An indivisible essence, no multiplicity in the Godhead. Chet is the eighth letter. So one creator of the seven heavens, one plus seven is eight. And then Dalet is the fourth letter. This denotes the four corners of the earth, the goyim, the nations. So Israel must take the light of El Echad, right? The one God of of monotheism, the one creator of the seven heavens to the four corners of the earth. Okay, this is also known as Tikkun HaOlam, Islahul Alam, restoring or repairing, rectifying the world. So the, the duty of the Jew is then twofold, to bring Yahida and Tzedek to the Goyim, to bring monotheism and righteousness or justice to the nations. Okay, There's a Kabbalistic uh, principle that says, as above, so is below. Right. So terrestrial righteousness must mirror celestial uh, righteousness. Now, most Jewish authorities will say that the human being, right, every human being, every Adam in Hebrew, is made in the image of God and therefore equal ontologically, essentially. So, uh, so we're all equal in kind, but not of degree. So monotheistic believers in the God of Abraham are better in degree than unbelievers. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right? It's like the poet, uh, he said, Muhammadun basharun walaysa kal-bashari wa huwa yaqudatun wa nasu kal-hajari. He said the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa is a human being but not like other human beings. He's a ruby while other men are mere stones. Right? So the ruby is a stone. It's equal in kind but not of degree. Okay. However, there, there is also a consistent teaching in Orthodox Jewish circles that there is, a, there is an essential difference between Jews and Gentiles. So Rabbi Abraham Isaac Kook, uh, who was the first uh, chief rabbi of Palestine from 1920 to 1935, one of the fathers of religious Zionism, and I'll talk about that later, he infamously advanced the opinion that the difference between a Jewish soul and a Goy soul, a non or Gentile soul, is greater than the difference between a human soul and a cow soul. Wow. Uh, rabbi Judah HaLevi, who's the famous medieval rabbi, the author of the Sefer Chuzari, a defense of Judaism. He was a Jewish apologist. He said that the difference between a Yehuda um, and a Goy, a, a Jew and a Gentile, uh, is one of kind, not of degree, just as humans are different than animals. Wow. You even find this idea in, in Jewish writings uh, that, that Jews have two souls, a nefesh ha-behamit, and then nefesh ha-elohut. In other words, Jews have a beastly or animal soul and a divine soul, a nafsul bahimiya, right? Well, nafsul ilahiya, uh, while the Gentiles only have one, the beastly. So this is something that many Jewish authorities do teach. They also say things like Jews have different teeth or a different face due to the divine spark, the nefesh ha-elohut. Uh, so there are anatomical uh, differences between Yehudim and Goyim. You know, but this, this whole uh, discourse um, was very likely influenced by interreligious polemical propaganda. Uh, in other words, the rabbis probably said these things as a response to certain Christians uh, who said that Jews have, you know, horns and tails or that Jews drink the blood of Christian children. Uh, so a lot of Jewish beliefs developed as a reaction, a reaction to Greece, a reaction to Rome, a reaction to Christianity a reaction to Islam, etc. Jewish systematic theology actually crystallized after Islam. So like Sadia Gayon, Judah HaLevi, Maimonides, all writing after Islam. Now, the word for Jew in Hebrew, Yehuda, um, uh, the word, sorry, the word for Jew in Hebrew is Yehuda, uh, who was one of the sons of Jacob, right? Judah, so Judah, the son of Jacob, Yehuda ben Yaakov. Uh, the Israelites were actually not called Yehudim, the Jews, collectively until about the 8th century before the Common Era, after the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom. Uh, the root meaning of the name Judah is to give thanks of praise. It's from the root Yada. So Judah's tribe became the largest. So all of Israel eventually adopted that title for their nation. But, uh, but the word Yehuda also contains the four letters of God's own name, the yod Hey vav Hey, this tetragrammaton. And this is supposed to be like um, the initials, if you will, of, of God's personal name. It's known as Hashem. Uh, so the word Jew in Hebrew, Yehuda, contains all four of these letters. Uh, so Jews, the Yehudim, they see themselves as the people of God, those who praise the Lord. What's interesting, though, is that Abraham would not have, would not have called himself a Jew, nor even Moses. So at the time of Abraham, the word Jew neither existed as a tribal designation, uh, nor as the name of a nation or religion. Um, mm -hmm. At Moses' time, it did exist as a tribal designation, but Moses would have called himself a Levite. 
uh, not a Jew. He was from the tribe of Levi. Uh, so the question is, what was the name of Moses's religion, right? Mm -hmm. So our claim as Muslims is that it, it was called submission unto God or something like that. In Arabic, this is called Al-Islam. Okay, so there are three major divisions of world Jewry. Okay, so Mizrahi, Sephardi, and Ashkenazi. And I'll explain these very briefly. Okay, so the Mizrahi Jews, the Mizrahi Jews, these are the Middle Eastern Jews, the Jews of the Muslim world. They speak uh, Hebrew and uh, Arabic and Farsi. Uh, then we have the Sephardim, the Sephardic Jews. And these are Jews of uh, Spanish or North African uh, heritage. So they speak Hebrew, Arabic, Spanish. They write in Hebrew, uh, in Arabic, in Ladino, which is you know, Hebrew with uh, Spanish with Hebrew letters. Uh, or Judeo-Arabic, right, which is uh, Arabic with Hebrew letters. Uh, and finally, the Ashkenazim or Ashkenazic uh, Jews. So these are the Jews of Europe and then uh, North America. And uh, they speak Yiddish really before World War II uh, and French and German and English. So Mizrahi, Sephardi, Ashkenazi, so Middle Eastern, Spanish and European Jews. Now, among the last group, okay, the Ashkenazim, that is to say modern Western Jewry, um, North American and European Jewry, there exists a tripartite denominational division, okay, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. Mm. Okay, this division only appears among the Ashkenazim. Why is that really? Two reasons, most likely. The, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century uh, and the Enlightenment of the 18th century. So the Ashkenazim, they, they sort of followed the trends of the European Christians mm -hmm. who were the dominant group. The, the Mizrahi and the Sephardic Jews, uh, they don't have this tripartite division because they're similar to the Muslims in those regions. So the Muslims were the dominant group. So there's a spectrum of devotion among these Jews to the Jewish faith and Jewish practices. Uh, just as you know, a Muslim in Egypt, for example, may pray five times a day in the mosque, while another uh, Muslim in Egypt might rarely go to the mosque, but the latter will still identify as a Sunni, a Shafi'i, for example, not a, you know, some type of reform Muslim or something like that. So there's a spectrum of, of devotion. So here are some demographics of American Jews. This is according to Pew Research Center. 10% of American Jews identify as Orthodox, 10%. Only 10%. That's remarkable because all Orthodox Judaism used to be just Judaism, the historic yeah. Ju Judaism. Or, uh, but now it's a, a tiny minority of... The, uh, yeah, very much a minority. They identify as Orthodox, sometimes called modern Orthodoxy. 18% uh, conservative and 35% reform. And then 37% no affiliation. So over a third of mm -hmm. ethnic American Jews do not identify as being religiously Jewish. Uh, these three groups, um, I'll just mention this, they have several basic points of difference between them. I'll just mention three basic points of difference, okay, between um, uh, the uh, Orthodox, the Reform, um, and the Conservative. So, number one, the authority of the Torah and the mitzvot, okay? So, there are 613 mitzvot commandments in the Chumash. Chumash is Hebrew for Pentateuch. So we're just talking from Genesis to Deuteronomy, 613, right? Those five books of Moses that are attributed to Moses. The first mitzvah is stated in Genesis 128, marry and produce children, right? So being celibate or a lifelong bachelor is actually uh, haram, asur in, in Judaism, if it's for pietistic reasons, right? It's considered a reprehensible innovation. Of course, we know that Jesus, peace be upon him, had a brother, James, 
Yaakov Hatzadik, and I make it a point to mention his name <laughs> uh, for almost every uh, podcast. So, so the Catholic doctrine of Marian perpetual virginity, right? This actually is sin in Judaism. It breaks the first mitzvah to say that Mary or Maryam Salam remained a virgin for the rest of her life for pietistic reasons. Um, the Quran says, So the Quran says, you know, this monkery or monasticism, celibacy, they innovated it. It's a bid'ah. We did not prescribe that upon them. And of course, we know the first few popes were actually uh, married. Uh, so, for the, so for the Orthodox, the modern Orthodox, uh, the Torah is the literal ipsissima verba of God. The very words of God revealed to it's Moses. Similar, it's very similar to the Quran, isn't it, in terms of its exactly. ontology and metaphysical status. Exactly, exactly. Every single letter was revealed to Moses 3,500 years ago, over 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai. Okay. They believe the mitzvot are transhistorical and thus absolutely binding upon every Jew for all time. And the historical critical method they consider is like kufur, is a heresy. For the conservative, the Torah is the word of God, but in a sort of looser sense, I guess, because there is allowance for the historical critical method as a providentially guided process, right? So uh, Julius Wellhausen came up with this documentary hypothesis, very, very popular. And he said that in the fifth century, there was someone called the redactor, probably Ezra, who sort of stitched together these different independent narratives about the early uh, Israelites. Uh, and, and Wellhausen calls him the redactor or R. Well, conservative Jews who believe in the historical critical method, they say, well, Rabbeinu, our Lord, is the true redactor. This is how God wanted to preserve the Torah, and that's fine with us. For the Reformed Jews, the Torah is not the literal word of God. It's a uh, historical record of some of the ancient Israelites. Um, the mitzvot are not binding, uh, but optional, and essentially they're optional. The mitzvot are mutable according to time and culture. In other words, the mitzvot for the reformed are subject to the zeitgeist, the prevailing spirit or culture of the current time. Mm. Uh, for example, there are reformed rabbis who are, you know, homosexual, uh, transgender, uh, or atheist. And very strange. We had an atheist rabbi wow. <laughs> come, into, come into the mosque over here in California. Uh, I remember I went to a <laughs> interfaith gathering at a reformed synagogue. This was years and years ago. And um, it was a it was a breakfast, and they were serving pork inside of our reformed synagogue. And I and I I didn't. I said, "What is this?" And said, "Pork." And I said, "You're not supposed to eat that, right?" And then they explained it to me. And then after interviewing me for a, a few minutes, this this old Jewish lady she leaned over the table and she said, "You are more Jewish than our rabbi." <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we follow these, you know, these ahkam. Uh, well, what's the point of identifying as as Jew Jewish in the religious sense if you're not actually going to follow the commandments given by God to Moses? It doesn't strike me as slightly redundant, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it's the whole point of the religion, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is why for the Orthodox, this is total heresy. Yeah. Right? So that's the first major point of difference, the authority of the Torah and, and the mitzvot. Uh, the second basic point of difference among these three groups is the authority of the Talmud, okay, mm. or the oral law. So what is the Talmud? Uh, so the Talmud is basically two things, the writings of what are known as the Tanaim and the writings of the Amoraim. Okay, so the Tanaim, who are the Tanaim? These were Palestinian Jewish scholars of the first and second centuries who wrote down what they knew of the oral law. Okay, so the oral Torah given to Moses on Sinai. A lot of people don't know this, but Orthodox Jews believe that Moses received two Torahs on Mount Sinai, one that he wrote down which is the Chumash, right? So 
Genesis to Deuteronomy, uh, but also an oral Torah. Uh, so this oral law became known as the Mishnah. It was eventually written down by the Tanaim, starting in the first century after the destruction of the Second Temple. Okay. Now the oral law, or the Mishnah, was compiled and codified by a Tana named Judah Hanasi in the late second century. Okay. The Amoraim uh, were the commentators of the Mishnah in both the Palestinian and Babylonian academies uh, between 200 and 500 of the common era. Uh, these commentaries are known as the Palestinian and Babylonian Gemara. Okay. The, so the, the Mishnah compilation of the writings of the Tanaim plus the Gemara compilation of the commentaries of the Amoraim equal the Talmud. Okay. So there are basically two versions of the Talmud. Uh, simply put, the Talmud is the oral law and its commentaries. Okay, the oral law and the and its commentaries. So among the modern orthodoxy, the oral law is true and binding. In fact, inspired by Ruach Kodosh, they say a spirit of inspiration. The Talmud is not as exalted as the written Torah because God Himself chose the wording of the written Torah. The Talmud is sort of a lower tier uh, revelation. So the analog to the Mishnah in Islam is like the Hadith, right, which is non-Quranic Wahi. Um, and the analog to the Gemara is Iha like, uh, or Ilham, non-prophetic inspiration, something like that. So it's not a one-to-one, -one, but these are sort of commensurate uh, ideas. Uh, among the conservative, the Talmud is true and binding, uh, but one can be more flexible and selective with regards to it. And it should not be accepted without criticism. And then for the reform, you can ignore it if you want it. <laughs> It's and no yeah. more authoritative than any yeah. of the writings of any other Jewish theologian. Hey, you, can eat, you can eat pork as a Jew. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or not even believe in God if you're wow. a reform. Uh, the third major point of difference is the concept of the Messiah. Okay, so differing ideas of messianism. So in modern orthodoxy, the Messiah is personal. He's a man from Judah. He's a descendant of David. He will rebuild the temple. He'll fight the wars of the Lord. He will gather the Jews from diaspora. Uh, he will be the king of the world. Uh, many of the major authorities in Judaism give him a deadline, right? A deadline that is sort of fast approaching, by the way, and you'll be surprised uh, when that is. I'll say more about the Messiah uh, later. This is very important, and I, I think the key to understanding the current situation, theologically, uh, in my opinion. Uh, for the conservative, the Messiah, yeah, he could be personal, or he could be like an age, a messianic age, a messianic uh, epoch, something like that. Uh, for the reform, they cancel the Messiah completely or maintain that the Messiah is an age or a polity, and this polity does not have to be Jewish. Uh, so the American government uh, can be the Messiah. Wow. Um, now, one of the most celebrated and authoritative Jewish scholars who ever lived was Maimonides. Mm. Uh, generally speaking, the Orthodox today embrace him as, as a great sage and scholar. Uh, so um, in order to enrich our understanding of the Jewish faith, I want to quickly take us through his famous 13 principles. Mm. Uh, but I'll give some biographical information beforehand, just uh, uh, to be a little more helpful here. So Maimonides was a Sephardic uh, Jew. He died in 1204 of the Common Era in Fustat in Egypt. So he lived in uh, Spain, Morocco, and Egypt. His bones were later carried into Galilee. Uh, the name Maimonides is obviously Latinized. His actual name was Rabbi Moshe bin Maimon. Uh, his Arabic name uh, was Musa ibn Maimon al-Qurtubi. Uh, he's also known as the Rambam, right? That's uh, the acronym Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, the Rambam. Uh, his magnum opus was called The Guide for the Perplexed, which he wrote in Judeo-Arabic. He called it Dalalatul Ha'irin. 
in Hebrew, it's called the More Nebuchim in three volumes. Uh, he was a great scholastic uh, synthesizer of Judaism with Aristotle. So Aristotle's theory of virtue. He was a natural theologian. He was a champion of negative theology, right? The via negativa. It's called lahut salvi, this idea that it is preferable and safer to describe God using only apophatic or negative uh, statements. Uh, according to Maimonides, God can be evidenced based upon reason and observation of natural processes, similar to like Aquinas' five arguments. The aim of the guide is to reconcile revelation with a reason, nakal and akal, or Torah with sechel, uh, or to put it another way, to, to demonstrate the compatibility of scripture, which was at times anthropomorphic with reason, because people were in a state of heira, they were in a state of, they were perplexed, right? So Maimonides would often make, he would, he would often make ta'wil, what we call ta'wil, he would uh, interpret uh, these ayat mutashabihat. I don't know what this would, what the Hebrew terminology would be, but basically he would interpret, he would engage in figurative or symbolic exegesis of the anthropomorphic verses in the Torah while rejecting the apparent or literal meaning. Uh, so for example, uh, the outstretched arm of the Lord, right, is clearly a reference to the strength of God. The Torah speaks in the language of men, to facilitate our understanding, but God is absolutely and utterly dissimilar uh, to his creation. Maimonides also off, uh, authored uh, the famous Mishnah Torah, the Code of the Law, which was a brilliant abridgment of the entire halakha, of the entire sharia of, of the Jews. And he wrote this in Hebrew. So all of his major works uh, were written in Judeo-Arabic, uh, which is, again, Arabic with Hebrew letters. Uh, his Mishnah Torah, where he wrote in Hebrew, and in this Mishnah Torah, it actually angered a lot of rabbis because uh, many, many students would actually study Mishnah Torah instead of the Talmud directly. Uh, so that made that ruffled some uh, feathers. Um, so his position was that all of the mitzvot, all of the commandments have a rational basis, uh, although the rationality may not be immediately self-evident. Right. All of these laws conform to wisdom even if it's not uh, obvious initially. So there's no contradiction between the Torah and the sechel, that is to say the nakal and akal, revelation and reason. So he's, that's his whole project, reconciling the two. The first part of the code is about ethics, his virtue theory. He stressed the doctrine of the mean. He uh, advocated Aristotle's theory of habitus. Uh, but while Maimonides, like Ghazali, said that virtue is both wahbi and kasbi, that is bestowed at birth and acquired through habitation. Aristotle affirmed only acquisition uh, through habitation. Um, Maimonides was also Aristotelian in his teleological metaphysic, right? So there are four causes to every process, efficient, material, formal, and final, right? The final cause in Arabic is called al-illatul is its final good, right? Its telos, its end, its purpose. So the telos of an acorn, as we know, is, is to be a flourishing oak tree. Maimonides would say, with respect to the Torah, uh, God's law, the efficient cause is God, right? Revealed by God to Moses. The material cause is the Jewish community, right? The material acted upon. Uh, the formal cause is what it is essentially. What is the Torah essentially? Ordinances of reason, okay? And then its final cause, its telos, its raya, is to end idolatry, thus uh, recognizing and loving God. Um, for Aristotle, the final cause of the human being is to live a contemplative life of virtue, to be a thinking creature, because our differentia, our distinction, our fossil as a species, 
uh, is reason. We are the rational animal. That's our definition, according to Aristotle. In other words, what makes our species unique among the genus of animal is reason. For Maimonides, the final aim of the human being is to be a praying creature. Mm. That is to say, a saint, it's sadiq. Okay, when revelation is considered in light of reason, this will ultimately lead us to a recognition and love uh, for our creator. So Maimonides says that Aristotle was like, he was, he's almost there, right? Not bad for a nonprofit, he says. Mm. Like what Augustine you know, said about Plato. Right. He almost got it. Right. The forms or essences are things um, in the celestial material realm. Well, they're actually in the mind of God, said Augustine, as objects of God's contemplation. So not bad for a nonprofit. Right. So like Plato and Aristotle are great examples of how far the akal can go without knuckle, without the revelation. Now, in his Mishnah Torah, in his Code of the Law, Maimonides articulates a basic creed. Okay, and creed comes from the Latin credo. It means I believe, right? So the, the Nicene Creed begins credo in unum deum, for example, I believe in one God in, in the Latin. Uh, so these are statements of belief based upon the Tanakh, the 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, and Talmud, the Mishnah and Gomorrah. So this is a testament to the genius of Maimonides. This creed is a unique distillation, like the bare bones of Jewish theology. It is no doubt influenced by Islamic theology and Muslim creedal articulations. So this creed is called the Shirasa Asar Iqare Emunat Yehudim, the 13 principles of the faith of the Jews. And Maimonides is very clear about this. If you don't believe in even one of these, then you are a kofer, you are a kafir, you're an unbeliever, or at least a min, at least a, like a heretic. Um, now, Joseph Albo, who was a 15th century rabbi, a bit after Maimonides, he actually said that Maimonides at times confused essential principles with derivative principles. Right. He, you know, the usul with the furur. Uh, and he and he certainly wasn't the only one who had issues with Maimonides. Uh, there was a lot of difference of opinion concerning the principles over the centuries. Uh, but despite this, Maimonides 13 principles has become maybe the most popular and celebrated creed in the Orthodox uh, Jewish world. Yeah. Um, Maimonides was also a medical doctor. Uh, so he's an incredible polymath. And I even heard that he was the personal physician of Salah al-Din al-Ayubi. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't verify that, but this is what somebody told me. Maybe somebody can verify that. So I'll, I'll, I'll breeze through these. Um, uh, but I want to pay special attention on principle number 12 on the Messiah, right? Because principle number 12 will nicely segue us into talking about uh, what is happening right now in Palestine, at least from my perspective. Mm. So he begins all of his statements with the phrase, Ani ma'amim be'emuna shalema. So I believe with complete faith. He says, the first one, he says, I believe with complete faith that the creator, blessed be his name, is the only one who creates. He continues and guides all of um, creation and did, is doing, and will do all actions by himself. Okay, in his commentary, Maimonides, he quotes from Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. Right, or say shalom, I make peace, uvore uh, ra, and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all of these things. So Maimonides sees evil as really a privation of good, a lack of good. Evil has no real, like, ontological basis or reality. It's simply an absence of good. Right, just as cold is is just the absence of heat or darkness is the absence of light. 
I mean, we call them cold and darkness, but they don't really exist. They're just privations of being. Uh, so we can summarize this iqar, this principle, as God is the creator and doer of all things. Okay, number two, he says, so he says, I believe with complete faith that the Creator, blessed be His name, is uniquely one. And there is not a uniqueness similar to His in any matter, right? And that He was, is, and always will be by Himself our God. So God is unique. He's radically one. He's immutable. Right? God is, you know, the perfect hashalom, as-salam. God is yachid, wahid. He's one. He's echad, right? Ahad. In other words, he's radically one and unique. The Trinity, it's called shilush. In Hebrew, is, is idolatry, according to uh, Maimonides. He calls it avod al-zara, false worship. Uh, God did not and will never incarnate into man. Lo ish elvi chazev. God is not a man that he should lie, right? Uh, if you look at the first few commandments, um, that I am the Lord, uh, your God, the one who brought you out from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Uh, number three, he says, "Ani ma'amin be'emuna shalema shehab yifbarach shmo guf." So he says, "I believe with complete faith that the Creator, blessed be His name, is not a material body." And then he continues, "And there is not for Him any likeness whatsoever." Uh, so as I said, Maimonides interprets the anthropomorphic verses. Uh, the anthropomorphic pisuchim, that's what the verses are called in the, in the uh, uh, Tanakh, um, in light of God's utter transcendence. So the very famous example, right, Exodus 33, 23, Moses saw God's back and not his face. He saw the achor Adonai, not the panim or the panei Adonai. So what, what does that mean? Well, Maimonides says Moses possessed, the meaning of this is that Moses possessed the greatest da'at Elohim, ma'rifatullah, the greatest knowledge of God possible for a human being. Seeing the face of God uh, means to know God as God knows himself, which is impossible for creation. Uh, no one really knows God uh, except God. So God is incorporeal and incomparable. Uh, number four, I believe with complete faith that the creator, blessed be his name, is the first without a beginning and the last without an end. So God did not begin to exist, nor will he ever cease to exist. Maimonides quotes here, uh, Exodus 3.14, Ehe, Ashar, Ehe, I am who I am. He says the meaning of this duplication of I am is that God is the very ground of being. He is being itself, right? In other words, I am he who is, or in the Greek Septuagint, Ego emi ho on. I am he who is, I am the necessary existent upon whom all creation is utterly dependent. God is the only non-contingent being who can truly say I am in truth. Right? So Hashem, right? God is pre-eternal. He is Havore. He is the creator. 
yesh mi'ain, right? Ex nihilo, <clears throat> upon whom infinite regress does not apply. Infinite regression dies at the door of Hashem, God. He is the creator of space, time, and matter. He transcends space, time, and matter. So God is the first and the last. Number five, <clears throat> he says, I believe with complete faith that the creator, blessed be his name, is the only one who is worthy of worship. Okay, so pray to God alone, not to prophets, not to saints or angels, calling on anyone other than God for Maimonides' uh, idolatry. He was especially um, condemnatory of, of praying to angels. Uh, number six, I believe with complete faith that all the words of the prophets are true. So in traditional Judaism, there are three degrees of revelation, right? And these are found in the Tanakh also known as the written Torah, HaTorah Shebi Kitav, right? The Christians call this the Old Testament. <clears throat> so the top tier revelation is the Torah, the instruction, the Chumash, the five books of Moses. These were spoken panim al panim, according to the text. In other words, were, uh, sorry, uh, face to face, God spoke these words face to face with Moses. They are the very words of Hashem. Uh, and then, uh, then you have the prophets, the Nabim. This is more indirect prophecy. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. Inspired by God, the very voice of God, ipsissima vox of God. And then, of course, you have the writings, the Kitubim. These are inspired through a spirit of holiness, a Ruach Kadosh. So you have Psalms and Proverbs and First and Second Kings, etc., etc. Uh, these are writings authored by non-prophets, like kings, poets, and uh, historians. Uh, so they have this kind of three-tier uh, conception of revelation. Now, according to Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yiksaki was a very great, um, famous uh, French rabbi in the 12th century. Um, the Talmud mentions that there have been over 1.2 million total prophets. So they, they would just double the number of men who made Exodus. I don't know why they did that, but that's his opinion, the, the opinion of the Talmudic rabbis. Uh, only 55 of them are mentioned explicitly in the Tanakh according to Rashi. So 48 men and seven women. Uh, <clears throat> number seven, <clears throat> so I believe with complete faith that the prophethood of liege Lord Moses upon whom be peace was true and that he is the master of the prophets. So the rabbis mention these kind of special qualities that Moses had, that no other prophet had. These kind of chasais of Moses. Uh, they say that he had direct, again, direct contact, panim ad panim, face-to-face -face contact with God. It, what they mean by that is there's no angelic mediation between God and Moses when he would speak with God. And then Moses, they say, when God spoke to him, it was as if two friends were speaking. So very easy on him physically, whereas other prophets would have uh, a little uh, pain and things like that. They would start sweating and shaking and things like that when God was speaking to them. But Moses is very easy, like he's talking to his friend. Uh, number three, they mentioned that Moses could actually initiate conversations with God. So whenever Moses wanted to, he could speak, he can begin speaking with God and God would always respond to him. And that wasn't true with any other prophet. And then they mentioned that Moses possessed, you know, again, this kind of special knowledge of God, the highest uh, ma'rifa or gnosis of God called da'at Elohim. Number eight, I believe with complete faith that the entire Torah, which we have today, is the very Torah that was given to our liege Lord Moses upon whom be peace. In other words, the Torah is divinely preserved. 
Um, I don't know if there's a single historical scholar who agrees with Maimonides here. Uh, most historians either endorse the documentary hypothesis or the supplementary hypothesis. Um, if viewers are not familiar with these, then they should look them up. According to confessional Jews, Moses actually wrote 13 Torah scrolls, uh, one for each tribe. And then he placed one of them inside the Aron Habirit, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, This latter Torah will uh, actually reemerge during the Messianic uh, era. But we'll talk about that uh, later. Number nine, I believe with complete faith that this Torah will never be abrogated and that, will, that there will never be another law given from the creator, blessed be his name. In other words, the immutability of the Torah. So, so in Judaism, there's no such thing as, you know, like a New Testament, in, in the Christian sense. Uh, the Orthodox believe that the covenant that God made with the Israelites on Sinai is forever and unconditional. Okay, so all of the 613 mitzvot are transhistorical. They're all valid and binding upon the Jews as long as the olam hazeh, as long as this world remains. And even if uh, many of the mitzvot are impossible to fulfill in our day due to the lack of the you know, temple and priesthood and sacrificial system, eventually these mitzvot will be reestablished in the messianic era. Mm. Number 10, he says, I believe with complete faith that the creator, blessed be his name, knows every action. He knows every action of the children of Adam, as well as their thoughts. So God is omniscient. So this iqar, this principle, affirms personalism. God cares about human affairs. God knows all things that can be known by rational and logical beings, as well as all things that cannot be known by rational and logical beings. He's absolutely omniscient. In other words, he knows the general and necessary truths as well as the details of individuals. Uh, for example, he knows um, what foods are healthy for human beings to consume to maintain optimal health. Now, this could also be known by human beings through reason in the general sense. But God also knows exactly down to the crumb what I will eat for lunch a thousand days from now if I'm still breathing, right? Inshallah. So this, this latter knowledge cannot be known by human beings. So God knows the past, he knows the future, and all the infinite possibilities. Number 11, I believe that the creator, blessed be his name, rewards the keepers of his commandments with good and punishes the ones who break his commandments. So God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Now, there's a lot of difference of opinion about the olam haba, right, the world to come, the akhirah mm. in Judaism, because it's not really mentioned in the Tanakh. But according to Maimonides, the souls of the deceased who were wicked, they experience kareth. Kareth means they're annihilated. God annihilates their souls. So they're never resurrected. While the souls of the righteous await the Yom Haddin, the day of judgment, in either Gehennom or Gan Adin, in either Jahannam or Jannatu Adin, so hell or the Garden of Eden, right? The souls of the righteous. Then on the day of judgment, the souls of the righteous are returned to their bodies and they're resurrected in Soma. Their bodies are resurrected. Then they're judged as to their stations in the world to come, the Olam Haba. And then the bodies die again and only disembodied souls continue. Okay, so he's both sort of Jewish and Greek in his eschatological orientation. So Jewish in the sense that physical bodies are recon recon uh, reconstituted and, and Greek in the sense that eventually only the souls enter the Olam Haba. And as far as reincarnation goes, uh, reincarnation is called Gilgul HaNishama. 
uh, it's based upon the Zohar, uh, which is a foundational book of the Kabbalah, which we're not going to talk about much today. Uh, the Orthodox believe that the Kabbalah was originally part of the oral, t- the oral law given to Moses uh, as well. Um, Sadia, Gaon, Joseph Albo, they explicitly reject reincarnation, Gilgul. Maimonides and Judah Halevi are silent. So let me quickly do number 13, and then we'll come back to number 12. So the 13th principle, he says, I, can, I believe with complete faith that the dead will be raised to life. Dechiet hametim, the dead will be raised. So uh, there are subtle indications, these are called remezim, subtle indications of the resurrection in the Tanakh. Ezekiel 37, for example, the, the valley of dry bones, right? The, the rabbis teach that, that the, the coccyx at the end of the spinal column it's called the luz in Hebrew. That's sort of the seed of the human being that God will water, as it were, and regrow uh, the human being um, on the day of judgment. Okay, let's go back to number 12 then. So this is the one I wanted to really focus on. Yeah. So this one he says, Anima amin be'emuna shalema bevi'at hamashiach. So I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so according to Maimonides, God used Christianity and Islam to prepare the world and raise awareness of the Messiah. That is to say, the concept of the Messiah, because ultimately Jews and Christians, sorry, Muslims and Christians believe in the wrong person, according to them. For Maimonides, the Messiah is not the Savior. He's not Ha-Moshiach. Like God is a Moshiach. God is the Savior. He's the only Savior. Uh, nor is the Messiah a divine being. The Messiah is a Goel. Goel means like a redeemer like Moses, a human being in all respects. So just some quick history here. So in 721 BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian Empire, right? King Sennacherib. So 10 of the 12 tribes were lost, either deported or massacred or a little bit of both. Uh, although a remnant of these tribes, okay, remained, they were not totally lost. Now, during this time, various prophets and sages gave rise to something called uh, restoration theology, right? also known as messianism. So it's this idea <clears throat> that one day a great king from David's line will come and unite all of Israel, just, just as it was during the Golden Age. This king will be known as Melech HaMashiach ben David, the Davidic King Messiah, Right. Um, in ancient Israelite coronation ceremonies, a king or a melech was crowned by a prophet who poured oil on his, on his head. So that's why Messiah means the anointed one. So Samuel, for example, he did this with Saul and then David. So all melechim are meshichim. So all kings are messiahs. But a special messiah will come and unite the Jewish people. So this is the idea that's developing. In 586 BCE, uh, what Jeremiah warned about actually came to pass, the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. So the temple is destroyed in 586 BCE. The last Davidic king of Judah, Zedekiah, was taken captive and his sons were killed. Now, 400 years earlier, around 1000 BCE, okay, God made a promise to David. This is in 2 Samuel 7.16, that David's house, kingdom, and throne will be established forever, okay? The apparent meaning is that there will always be a Davidic king sitting on the throne. In other words, there's always going to be a Davidic Messiah. So what happened to this promise? Zedekiah, the last Davidic king, was deposed and enslaved. He died in Babylon. 
So the Jews, they reinterpreted this promise as actually pointing to the future. In the future, the Davidic throne will be restored and remain forever. So this was the result, this was the result of cognitive dissonance. So this is what happens when your beliefs are suddenly falsified. Yeah. It's leaving you two options. You either reinterpret the text or you abandon the text. I mean, this is a very common tension. Mm-hmm. By abandoning, this would mean that either God broke his promise or that the scriptures were false, so the Jews didn't want to say that. Perhaps the promise was conditional upon Israel's obedience and God nullified it as a result of their disobedience. At any rate, an improvised sort of ad hoc reinterpretation of the text developed. So now a belief in an eschatological King Messiah began to dominate the hearts and minds of the Jews during the Babylonian period. This distant future Davidic Messiah will conquer the entire world, not just Israel. Okay, He will make the Torah the law of every nation, and he will reign over the world um, until the end of time. So not just an improvised, but also a highly exaggerated reinterpretation. So what are the signs of the Messiah? So who is he and what will he do? So according to the Orthodox, he will be from the seed of King David, right? Zerah David HaMelech. The throne or the rule of David, what's known as the Malkuth David, will be restored. He will inaugurate the ingathering of the Jews from diaspora. This is called Kibbutz Galut. He will be a righteous judge, a Shofet Sedeq. Uh, he will rebuild the temple, the Beit HaMikdash. He will usher in an era of global peace. Uh, the dead will be raised in the Messianic era. He'll bring forth, as I said, the Aron Habarit, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Torah therein. He will sacrifice a perfect three-year-old red heifer, the ashes of which must be used to purify the temple priests, the Kohanim. And currently, by the way, there are five perfect red heifers uh, right now in Israel, flown in from a, a ranch uh, in Texas. They're almost two years old. Um, so this red heifer would be the 10th uh, in their history. Uh, and it, 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 I guess it's going to be sacrificed on the Mount of Olives in a solemn ceremony. I mean, I think they're preparing for this even right now. And then he'll also fight the what's known as the Milchamat Adonai, the wars of the Lord. So he's a warrior messiah, a military messiah. Now, Jewish tradition teaches that this Messiah must appear and accomplish everything before the year 6,000, okay, before the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord. Of course, a day is as a thousand years for the Lord, right? So the year right now is 5784 after creation. So we are in the final hours of the sixth day. This is how the rabbis put it. This is mentioned everywhere in Jewish tradition. Therefore, the deadline of the Messiah is, is September 2240, when converted to the Gregorian calendar. So that's 217 years from now, but that's his deadline. So he has to appear well before this in order to accomplish everything. So really from a Jewish perspective, his arrival is imminent. Okay, so to review, the the end of the Davidic monarchy in 586 BCE produced a belief in a future Davidic redemption or redeemer. Okay, for Jews, right, God's word is always true. His words cannot be false. And in 2 Samuel 7.16, God promised David that his house, kingdom, and throne will remain forever. But in light of the events of 586 BCE, with the deposing of Zedekiah, um, what this promise must mean is that David's throne will be established in the future until the end of time. So now we move towards an eschatological redemption, an eschatological messianism. You know, David was cut off by the Babylonians, but he will come back 
bigger and better than ever. In fact, he'll rule the whole world. He'll conquer the world through militarism and implement the Torah as the law of the whole world. And all of this must happen before the seventh millennium, before the year 6,000, before the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord. So here's my critique of this. So the earlier verses, and I mentioned this before, but I mentioned again because I really want people to understand this. The, the earliest verses in the Tanakh that mention the coming of a great Davidic king Messiah, these were fulfilled by Hezekiah. I think they're describing Hezekiah who opposed the Assyrians. Those verses were clearly talking about him. When the Babylonians removed the last Davidic king from the throne in 586 BCE, Jewish scribes and exegetes again started saying that another Davidic king would come to save them, someone like Hezekiah. But this time he would save them from the Babylonians and he would rebuild the temple and gather the Jews, etc. These writings, in my opinion, were wishful thinking fabrications. Why do I say that? Well, because no Jewish king came. A Persian king came named Cyrus. And God, mm -hmm. in Isaiah 45, calls him Messiah. And he rebuilt the temple and he gathered the Jews back uh, to, to, to Israel. So God chose a Gentile as his Messiah and God chooses whoever he wills. Uh, but this was deemed unacceptable by the Jews because the later fabricated prophecies said that a Jewish Davidic king would defeat the Babylonians and rebuild the temple, as well as regather the Jews. Thus, a major sort of exegetical revision was needed in order to justify those later prophecies. So, th so the Jews began ignoring the historical context of these later prophecies of the Babylonian period and began claiming that this Jewish king would come in the indefinite future, right? In truth, I don't believe there ever was to be a future Davidic king Messiah who would rule the whole world. I mean, today, David's line is lost. So even if a Jewish man would come upon the scene and say, I'm the Davidic Messiah, there's no way to prove he's from David. Uh, I, I do think at some point, some Jewish elements in Israel will try to self-fulfill this, okay? But this person will be an imposter. Interestingly, in, in Sanhedrin 99b, this is in the Talmud, Rabbi Hillel, this is a later Hillel, he said, quote, there shall be no Messiah for Israel because they have already enjoyed him in the days of Hezekiah. Hmm. Hezekiah was the Davidic king Messiah. From our perspective, the Messiah that the Jews were supposed to accept was a prophet Messiah, Isa ibn Maryam, alayhi salam, was a spiritual master who taught them the spiritual path, a Messiah who would be saved from his enemies, according to Psalm 20, verse 6, a Messiah who announced the coming of the powerful Bar Enash of Daniel chapter 7. It is this Messiah, Isa ibn Maryam, who will defeat the imposter Messiah, according to Islamic eschatology. So Jesus, peace be upon him, is the Messiah, and he will return to defeat the imposter Messiah. A very common uh, deception used by Christian apologists uh, is to say that the Muslim Messiah is the Mahdi, they say this all the time, right? That's what they call him, the Muslim Messiah. The Mahdi is the Muslim Messiah, is what they say, right? This is totally wrong. The, the Mahdi is the guided one from the Ahlul Bayt of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu So he will be a leader of the Muslims, but he's not the Messiah. The Quran tells us explicitly who the Messiah for the Muslims is, Isa ibn Maryam, right? So Christian apologists, they don't like to mention this, that Jesus, the son of Mary, is the Messiah, according to the explicit text in the Quran. And Jesus, the son of Mary, is the same Jesus who lived in Galilee 2,000 years ago. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, uh, according to Islam. Now, a common question that we get all the time as Muslims is, what does Jerusalem have to do with Islam? Why do Muslims consider Jerusalem to be a sacred place? 
And it's a shame that people, you know, we still get this question because even a basic study of Islam will quickly reveal the answer. Number one, Jerusalem was the ancient home of many of the great prophets of, of God. So, so Jews, Christians, and Muslims, they have a lot of prophets in common. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that. Uh, Islam is a religion that reveres Abraham. He's the great patriarch. Uh, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a direct descendant of Abraham, just as Moses and Jesus, peace be upon him, were direct descendants of Abraham. But even so, uh, the Quran makes the argument, Indeed, those who have the best claim to Abraham are his followers, as are this prophet and the believers, meaning the Muslims, and Allah is a guardian uh, of those who believe. So the true Abrahamites, I guess we can say, are those who follow Abraham, irrespective of blood or lineage. And Islam really sees itself as a restoration of the millah, the creed or tradition of Abraham. The second reason is because Jerusalem was the, the prayer qibla of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the Sahaba for 16 or 17 months. And then God revealed in the Quran, uh, so now turn your faces to the inviolable mosque, right, in Mecca. Wherever you are, turn your faces towards the mosque. This is chapter 2, verse 44 uh, of the Quran. But why was the original Qibla or prayer direction Jerusalem? Because it's considered a holy and blessed place, right? Uh, in the Quran, uh, Palestine, which obviously includes uh, Jerusalem, is called the Holy Land, right? According to the Quran, Moses said, Ya qawmi udkhulu al-ard al-muqaddisa. Right? Oh, my people enter the Holy Land. And the third reason is when, when God caused his beloved, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to ascend, right? His ascension, his uruj was from Jerusalem. So, you know, God could have raised him from Mecca, but he didn't do that. He brought him first to the Temple Mount, Beitul Maqdis, in Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, the Prophet ascended the various, you know, Samawat. Uh, and while the Prophet was at the, at the site of the Second Temple, he led a company of the messengers in prayer because he is Imam al-Mursaleen. He is one of the great, uh, he is the, uh, uh, the, the leader of the messengers of God. Now, speaking of the temple, in light of current events, I want to say something about the idea of a Christian Zionist. Mm. Okay? Uh, this whole concept of Christian Zionism is a bit sort of mind-boggling to me. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, and I'll tell you why. First of all, what is Zionism? Okay, so broadly speaking... Zionism is a modern and nationalistic movement aimed at reestablishing a Jewish homeland. It was born in Europe, okay, born out of European anti-Semitism. The, the so-called father of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, was an ethnically Jewish atheist. And that, you know, that's the irony, right? I mean, Theodore means the gift of God. Uh, and so Herzl was, was seriously considering Argentina uh, as being the Jewish homeland. I mean, he didn't have this romantic attachment to Palestine. But here's the other thing about Zionism. Zionism is also a modern Orthodox reform movement, right? And that's to put it mildly. Uh, to put it more bluntly, um, Zionism is a hijacking of Orthodox or traditional Judaism. And the vast majority of Jewish writers before World War II were vehemently anti-Zionist. And there are thousands upon thousands of Orthodox and traditional Jews today who are anti-Zionist. Now, part and parcel to the Zionist project uh, from, a, from a Jewish religious standpoint is the construction of the third temple on, uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, it is clearly against the teachings of the New Testament for a Christian to support the construction of the third temple in Jerusalem. For a Christian to do this is to commit unambiguous blasphemy 
according to the New Testament. And, and yet there are millions upon millions of Christian Zionists all around the world. They donate millions of dollars to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of Zionists are not Jewish. They're actually Christian. Uh, it's just the fact there's only 15 million Jews worldwide. So why is it blasphemy? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus himself is the new temple. And the prologue of John's gospel says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? The Greek says, kai halaga sarks agenata, kai kainosin and hermin. Right? He, tabernacle, he tabernacles amongst us. Tabernacle, yeah, exactly. Tabernacle is the forerunner of the temple itself. Exactly, yeah. The verb here used in John's prologue, eskenosin, comes from the, the noun skene, which means a tent or a canopy. Right? Mm. So you see in the Old Testament, the kavod or the shekhinah, the presence of God, dwelled in the tent of meaning, of meeting, the, the mishkan, right? the tabernacle, as you said, in the wilderness at the time of Moses and Joshua. The indwelling of God was figurative. This tent was sort of the prototype of the first temple built by Solomon. So the temple honorifically is called the house of God, Beth El or Beitullah. Again, in this figurative sense, mm. the temple housed God's spirit, as it were. But mm. what did John say in the prologue? The word became flesh and tented himself among us. So Jesus is a new Mishkan that houses the kavod of God. In the very next chapter, in John chapter 2, we read that the Jews said to Jesus, what sign can you give us? And Jesus, the Johannine Jesus, this is a New Testament Jesus. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? And, he and then John says, the author says, but he spoke of the temple of his body. The Hebrew word for temple, heikal, also means body. The New Testament Jesus is saying that he is the new temple. For Christians to support the construction of a third temple in Jerusalem is to de deny. It's to deny the New Testament Jesus. Jesus replaces the temple according to the New Testament. The, the modern Israelis, they placed a sign near the Temple Mount that says, the divine presence, the Shekhinah, never moves from the Western Wall. No Christian on earth, if he wants to follow the teachings of the New Testament, can ever support such a statement. It's blasphemy. Let me quote the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Catechism section 1197. Christ is the true temple of God, the place where his glory dwells. So Christian Zionism is a betrayal of the New Testament Jesus. And here's another thing. John, in his gospel, as we know, he moved the day of the crucifixion up one day. In the synoptics, Jesus is crucified on the day of Passover. In John, it's the previous day, the day of the preparation of the Passover. So there's a contradiction in the gospels. Now, certainly he wasn't crucified twice. From our perspective, he wasn't even crucified once, but that's another podcast. Uh, but why? Why did, why did John move, uh, move up the day of the crucifixion? Because this was when the lambs in the temple were being slaughtered. Now, only in John do we find that a Roman centurion impales the side of the crucified Jesus, from which came forth blood and water, says John. What's the significance of that? Well, on that very day, at that very moment, the lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover in the temple, the, the Kohanim, the priests, they would open a side gate and they'd wash the blood out with water. Blood and water would gush forth from the side of the temple. Jesus is the new temple. Christian Zionism is utter blasphemy, according to the New Testament. In 1 John 2.22, the author says, quote, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He continues, hutas esin ha antichristas. This is the antichrist. The one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah is the Antichrist. This is the New Testament. Right? This is not my opinion. It's not the Quran. It's not the Hadith. This is the New Testament. The Jews are no longer the chosen people according to the clear teachings of the New Testament. The, the New Testament advances replacement theology. 
covenantal supersessionism. Now, Christian Zionists, they love to quote Genesis 12, uh, uh, verse 3, where God says to Abraham, and I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. Right? So, so they take this to mean that, that they must bless Abraham and his chosen seed, the Israelites, or else God will curse them. So in their minds, it follows then that if they don't bless and support the modern state of Israel, then God won't bless them. And this is what they say. I mean, never mind the fact that in order for a Christian to immigrate to Israel, he must renounce Christianity. I mean, I mean Israel will gladly accept Christian money, but in order for a Christian to move to Israel, he has to admit that Jesus was a false prophet and a pseudo-Messiah. But this is what the Christian Zionists say. They say, we have a religious duty to love and support Israel. The problem with this assertion is that it's totally contradictory to the New Testament. I mean, just read Paul of Tarsus, right? 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament are explicitly attributed to Paul. And Paul is a supersessionist, right? To his, to his very being. Supersessionism is this idea that the Christian church has superseded the nation of Israel as God's covenant people. It's very clear. I mean, listen to what Paul says uh, in Galatians 3.16 about God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis. This is Paul talking here. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And here, of course, the Christian Zionists will say, amen. But Paul continues, scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. So according to Paul, uh, God in Genesis was only referring to Jesus Christ as being Abraham's seed. Only Jesus is blessed, not the Israelites, and certainly not the modern state of Israel. I mean, Paul goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians chapter 3, 28 and 29. Christians are the new chosen people according to the New Testament. You are only chosen and blessed if you believe in Jesus. Of course, that's what he's saying. He's a Christian. I mean, are, are the Jews who wrote the Talmud still chosen and beloved by God according to the Christians? Are, are, are the Jews still the apple of God's eye who cursed and slandered Jesus and his mother in the Talmud? Also, also in Galatians Paul makes this interesting claim that, that Gentiles who believe in Jesus, like Greeks and Romans who believe in Jesus, are now the children of Sarah, the free woman, while Jews, who are actually descendants of Isaac, but did not accept Jesus, are now children of the bondswoman Hagar. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, I don't agree with Paul, but this, this is the teaching of the New Testament. This is what he's saying. Read the early church fathers, uh, John Chrysostom. Uh, uh, Augustine of Hippo, John Calvin, Martin Luther, I mean, my goodness, Martin Luther, on the Jews and their lives. I don't agree with, with, he, with, with what he's saying, but this is the pioneer of the Protestant Reformation. Zionism is kufur, according to the New Testament, and according to traditional Christianity. In the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus tells, it says, the Jews, no longer scribes and Pharisees, the Jews, that if they were Abraham's seed, they would do the works of Abraham, Right? Then he says, no, you are children of your father, the devil. That's the New Testament, Jesus. That's not the Quran or Hadith. This is the teaching of the New Testament. In Romans 6 and Hebrews 10, Paul says that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was the be-all, end-all sacrifice. So Jesus is the ultimate temple, the ultimate high priest, and the ultimate sacrifice. 
This is New Testament Christianity. Yet Christian Zionists fully support the third temple where sin sacrifices will return one day, according to Jewish messianism. How can they support this and call themselves Bible-believing Christians? Our new speaker of the house in America, his name is Mike Johnson, who identifies as an evangelical Christian Zionist, recently said that America has a religious duty to support Israel. Total blasphemy. I mean, blasphemy according to Christianity. So Christian Zionist is like open secret, original copy, you know, living dead. It's an oxymoron. Okay, so, you know, I I feel a bit, uh, you know, compelled, like morally compelled as a human being and as a Muslim and a professor to offer my thoughts about the the present conflict, really the present genocide. I think it's very important for us as Muslims to have a um, more comprehensive theological understanding of the present situation. And I think it's time to, you know, step up our level of sophistication with this issue, right? Um, I think we owe it to our brothers and sisters in Palestine who are suffering right now. Now, before I get into what I think is actually happening over there theologically, uh, I want to make a few comparisons because comparisons are very, very helpful, right? They put things in the proper perspective. Uh, They really help me understand. Um, So the total number of people killed in all of the military campaigns of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, this Muslim and non-Muslim, was about 1,000, between 1,000 and 1,100. These are men on the battlefield. By comparison, the United States dropped two bombs on Japan, killing 300,000 civilians on impact. You know, I mean, think about that. It was never the practice of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to target civilians in wartime, and certainly never women and children. This is known, this is ma'loom, and any Muslim who does so is in clear violation of the teachings of the Prophet. I mean, the Prophet is our role model and exemplar. The Quran tells us that he's our role model and exemplar on the day of Uhud with blood streaming down his face. The Prophet said, Allahumma hdi qawmi fa innuhum la ya'lamun. Oh my Lord, oh Allah, uh, guide my people for they don't know. And this is mentioned in our sources. I mean, in Luke 23, right? The Luke in Jesus says something, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But that verse is actually missing from the oldest and best manuscripts of Luke's gospel. I mean, we just read Bruce Metzger, Bart Ehrman, they think it's a fabrication. But our prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he prayed for his enemies in the thick of battle. And when the prophet conquered Mecca, he said, that today is a day of mercy, the exaltation of the Quraysh. And he said, there's no blemish on you today. And he declared a general amnesty. So this is the prophet in a position of power. Years earlier, when he was stoned out of Ta'if by the slaves and children of the Bani Thaqif, he refused to curse them. He prayed for their descendants. By comparison, okay, by comparison. And I mentioned this story before, but now it's uh, also important to mention, just for comparison, there's a story in the Bible, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 2. This is a story that Jews and Christians believe in. The Hebrew prophet Elisha was leaving Jericho. And I'll just read the NIV translation. And he, Elisha, was walking along the road. Some boys came out uh, of the town and jeered at him. And they said, get out of here, baldy. You know, so they made fun of him. You know, they made fun of his bald spot. Now, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was when he was leaving Ta'if, he was being insulted and they were punching him and kicking him and throwing stones at him. He was covered in blood. But what did Elisha do? This is mentioned in the Bible. I'm not, I'm not making this up and I'm not mentioning this to ridicule anyone's religion. I'm mentioning this uh, in order to draw an effective comparison. It says he turned around, looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. 
Then 42 bears came out of, uh, sorry, then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 boys. So 42 young boys, children, mauled to death by two bears. I mean, can you just imagine the carnage, the screams, the terror, right? Now, after 9-11, for those of us who remember, a group of anti-Muslim war-mongering profligates, they emerged in the public discourse and they would quote the so-called ayat al-saif, you know, the verse of the sword from the Quran, chapter 9, verse 5. And they tried to convince the American people and the entire West by extension that Muslims believe in unmitigated perpetual warfare against unbelievers. And that the Quran orders Muslims to kill every non-Muslim on the planet, man, woman, and child. Because the Quran says, kill the mushrikeen, kill the mushrikeen wherever you find them. And if Muslims deny this, then they're lying to you. It's called taqiyya, uh, you know, prudential concealment. Uh, so this was how these, you know, so-called wars of terror against Muslims were justified for the Western public. 4.7 million Muslims have been killed in these wars of terror in the last 20 years, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, et cetera, 4.7 million based on a lie. I mean, the, the ultimate blood libel. And, and the Jewish people, they understand the power of a blood libel, right? In medieval England, the Christians made up the infamous lie that Jews kidnap and kill Christian children and use their blood for their magical rituals and in the making of the unleavened Passover bread. This lie contributed to massive persecution of Jews, and Edward I eventually expelling the entire Jewish population from England in 1290. You know, it's like saying, you know, Muslims decapitate innocent babies, a, to a total blood libel. But back to Ayat al-Saif, okay, the, the so-called verse of the sword, chapter 9, verse 5. When we look at the context of that verse in the Quran, it's plain and obvious meaning. It becomes very clear that the Quran is referring to pagan Arabs in the Hejaz, in the Arabian Peninsula, who broke their treaty with the Muslims. And they were given four months to leave or face retaliation from the Muslims. And if at any point a mushrik, okay, asked for asylum from the Muslims, he must be granted asylum. This is according to the passage. Look at the full context in Surah Tawbah. I mean, it says, take him to a place of safety and recite the Quran to him. And if he refuses Islam, then take him to the border and release him. So 9.5 of the Quran has a locative condition. It applies to the Hijaz, the heartland of Islam the cities of Mecca and Medina. There can be no outward idolatry in these places. And this verse has a very clear context. No killing of the innocent, no killing of women and children is mentioned, no destroying buildings and livestock. And if a handful of ignorant Muslim extremists invoke this verse as a justification for the killing of civilians, then they stand condemned. These are mutatarifun, these are, these are extremists who have to twist and turn the Quran and the Sunnah to coincide with their deviance. Now, there is a war policy mentioned and explicitly described in the Tanakh, okay, several times. It's called Cherem. Okay, where is this mentioned? Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Samuel, Isaiah, I mean, it's all over the place. What does Cherem mean? So let's go to academic sources. This is the Strong's Concordance. Cherem, I'm just quoting here, to ban, devote, destroy utterly, completely destroy, dedicate for destruction, exterminate. This is the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew English Lexicon. This is used in seminaries all over the West. I used this years ago in Hebrew class. The Brown Driver Briggs. Cherem, to exterminate the massacre of all inhabitants. Gesenius' Hebrew Chalde Lexicon to the Old Testament. Cherem, to extirpate. I had to actually look that up. 
It means to eradicate, eliminate, to destroy utterly. So what's an example of cherem? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. So here, God is telling Moses that the cities that God gave to the Israelites as an inheritance, so the promised land, all living things of these cities must be exterminated. In the very words of the text, it says, Lo kol neshama. You shall, not, you shall not save alive anything that breeds, but thou shalt destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God has commanded thee. So total extermination, explicitly ordered by the text. Genocide, explicitly ordered by the text. And it's plain and obvious meaning. You don't have to twist and turn it. This is what it says on the surface. Now, I mentioned the um, conquest of Mecca earlier. Now, I wonder how many people have heard of the conquest of Jericho. Because here, Joshua, chapter 6, verse 21, this is what it says. Vayacharimu, this is how it begins. Vayacharimu, this is a he feel imperfect with vav consecutive. It's from the verb haram, the verb is, the, the noun is cherem. You shall exterminate. Ef kol aser da'ir, everything that is in the city. Mi'ish va'ad isha, both man and woman. Young and old, the ox, the sheep, the donkey, with the edge of the sword. This is called cherem. Here's the point. The wholesale slaughter of innocent civilians as a policy of war is sanctioned by Jewish and Christian texts. Deuteronomy 20, Joshua 6, 1 Samuel 15, these are Jewish and Christian texts. You know, Philip, uh, Professor Philip Jenkins, as you pointed out, Paul, says cherem is a mass human sacrifice. Oh, just on that point, um, sorry, that's the book we're talking about here, Laying Down the Sword, Why We Can't Ignore the Bible's Violent Verses. Philip Jenkins, uh, is, his actual title is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion in America. I think it's Texas. Do, I, I do recommend this book very strongly because he's an expert historian, um, talking about those verses which Dr. Aliyatai is referring and many more which yeah. uh, apparently uh, command the extermination of whole tribes, peoples, nations, races uh, mm. for the chosen people. And this is relevant today because these verses have been used and are being used uh, yeah. throughout the last 2000. It's not history. This is current application of these verses even today, unfortunately. Yes, thank you. Now, Somebody might ask, didn't I, you know, didn't I quote Deuteronomy earlier to make to make a point? So is the Bible accurate or not? So let me just say something very quickly here. It, you know, Islam has the answer for the state of the Bible. I mean, the Quran is the muhaymin, means the overseer or super supervisor of the Bible. The Quran is the furqan, the standard of judgment when it comes to the Bible. So the Quran refers to tahrif of the biblical text, alteration, fabrication, decontextualization. The text of the Bible has been corrupted to a certain significant degree, okay? And this is totally mainstream historical scholarship of the Bible. It took historical scholars about 1,200 years to catch up with the Quran. In fact, scriptural alteration of the Torah is admitted in the Tanakh itself. In Jeremiah 8.8, 8, Jeremiah says, How can you say we are wise and we have the Torah Adonai? We have the law of the Lord. Hinei l'sheker asa eight. Sheker sofrim, he says, for falsehood, the lying pen of the scribes have made it. Or to say it another way, the false pens of the scribes have turned it, the Torah, into a lie. Okay, now, 
how do modern rabbinical authorities deal with these cherem passages? This is really important, okay? It's really three ways. So number one, the normative Jewish opinion, the mitzvah to commit cherem in the Holy Land is one of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah. It's number 528, according to the numbering of Maimonides. It says, leave none alive of the seven nations. This is Deuteronomy 20. 16. Six of the seven nations are mentioned in the next verse, 2017, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. However, uh, a group called the, the Girgashites, as Rashi and others mention, are not mentioned explicitly in Deuteronomy 2017, but are nonetheless included under the ban, that is to say, order to be exterminated as well. Now, Abraham ben Ezra and Rabbi Hezekiah ben Manoah and many others maintain that this mitzvah was limited only to the generation of Moses. Okay, so Rabbi Hezekiah, this is a quote from him. The validity of this commandment is limited to the generation Moses is addressing, i.e. The, the period during which the Israelites will be engaged in fighting the Canaanites in order to settle in the land promised by God to their patriarchs Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. If members of these tribes had immigrated voluntarily, and at some point, future date, return individually, uh, and even wish to convert to Judaism, this is acceptable. So Cherem of these seven nations was only for that time, at that place, and never again. And the reason is because these groups are gone. They no longer exist. Uh, so while the 613 mitzvot are believed to be perennial and perpetual, right, transhistorical, there, there's simply no application of this mitzvah because these groups are gone. And Maimonides says, even if descendants of these groups remain unto today, mixed among other nations, as long as their evil culture has gone, their idolatry, their child sacrifice, their immorality, then the mitzvah stands fulfilled and there is no application. So this is traditional Judaism. Okay. Now, it is important to mention that almost, uh, that almost no critical historians of the Bible believe that such a massive extermination of these nations uh, re really ever took place, right? These stories are exaggerations uh, and really intended as scare tactics. They function to scare the enemies of Israel as well as to give hope to the Israelites. So what actually happened to these groups? These groups, you know, they migrated, they assimilated, they converted. Yes, there were wars and battles from time to time, but wholesale genocide, probably not. But what matters is belief, right? And the Orthodox take these stories literally, Okay, they believe them to be historically true, as did the most eminent of Christian scholars, from Augustine to Aquinas to John Calvin. And there's a book that I recommend on this by uh, the author's name is Christian Hoffreader. It's called Making Sense of Old Testament Genocide. And then the sub, uh, subtitle is Christian Interpretations of Chedem Passages. It was published by Oxford in 2018. Um, the trend nowadays from apologists is just to deny these things. They say, oh, that was meant to be hyperbolic. Uh, so Christian apologists nowadays will say it's just hyperbole. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, there may be your experience. In my experience, talking to Christian missionaries over the years is when you confront them with passages like in 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 3, where you know God, through Samuel, commands uh, King uh, King Saul to yeah. slaughter the Amalekites, and they specifically detailed that you must kill the men, the women, the children, and yeah. the babies, plus a bunch of donkeys and whatnot. They always defend it. They say, "Oh, well, you know, uh, these are evil people." And I'm thinking, yeah. the "Babies are evil? Come on, <laughs> babies are not evil." Oh, well, um, um, well, you know, if, if the babies hadn't been killed, they would have grown up and killed the 
the Israelites. I'm thinking, hang on, that's what the Nazis argued when they were killing Jewish babies because the Jewish babies could grow up, take revenge on the Nazis. The best kill right. babies. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. And, but they're not hearing this stuff. But yeah. I, I, I usually hear them justify genocide right. and child. Yeah. These are the people who would tell Muslims, "Oh, we believe in a God of love." And right. thinking, but you, but you justified child killing and genocide. This is absurd. Yeah. Nowhere in the right. cross does it justify this kind of behavior. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of them now are just. I think they're embarrassed. You know, so they'll make up things like, "Oh, you know, I don't. Uh, it's it's hyper, it's hyperbole." You know, because these stories, I think they, I mean, obviously they're very disturbing and there's no historical evidence of these things. Sure. So, so anyway, that's the, that's the, the, the sort of traditional normative opinion. Now, another opinion says uh, that Cherem in the Holy Land will happen one more time at that place, but only when the Messiah comes. Yeah. So we must wait for the Messiah, right? Their Messiah, right? The King Messiah, son of David. So only the Messiah can begin the process of this kibbutz galut, the regathering of the Jews from diaspora, mm. and then reestablish the Jewish state. And then he will fight the milchamot Adonai, the wars of the Lord, etc. The third opinion is the position of religious Zionism. Okay, in Hebrew, religious Zionism is called siyunot datit, siyunot datit. Um, the so-called religious Zionists, they see no contradiction between Zionism and Orthodox Judaism or traditional Judaism. Mm. Now, now, there has been a constant and sustained sentiment among the religious Zionists, the, the, the religious Zionist Jews of Israel, that the Palestinians are the modern-day Canaanites. And this is a very common sentiment among religious Zionists. Therefore, it is the religious duty of the government of Israel to wage a war of extermination against the Palestinian people. And this is what we are seeing right now in all of its horror. So I encourage people to look up you know, Gush uh, Emunim, the Coalition of the Faithful. Look up Rabbi Abraham Kook. Look up his son Yehuda Kook. Look up Rabbi Shlomo Aviner. In, in the minds of these religious Zionists, the Israeli government has a religious duty to implement mitzvah number 528 and utterly destroy the Palestinians. I mean, they believe that the coming of their Messiah can be hastened through continued aggression, okay. conquest, and settlement of, of Palestinian territories. All of this aggression will culminate in the coming of their Messiah. And guess, and guess what? what? The, the, political the political party known as HaLikud are extremely dedicated religious Zionists. And of course, Likud's chairman is Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who's been the prime minister of Israel since 2009. Uh, there are many people of this understanding in his party. Uh, and they're highly influencing him. So, I mean, so they believe that they can use divinely sanctioned violence to essentially prepare the land for the Messiah. They can get the ball moving before his arrival. They can start the process and the Messiah will finish it. And again, we see that the clear and obvious policy of the Israeli government as a whole is apply, uh, that, that, that they're applying to the Palestinians in Gaza and now in the West Bank, because uh, they want the Temple Mount, is this policy cannot be described as anything other than Cherem. It's Cherem in 2023. They're preparing the land for their Messiah. So Palestinian civilians, they're, they're essentially paying for the sins of Europe. Uh, professor uh, Roz Siegel, he's a professor at Stockton University. He's an Israeli journalist as well. I mean, he's Israeli. He specializes in Holocaust and genocide studies. His name is Roz Siegel, S-E-G-A-L. Uh, he says that what Israel is doing right now to the Palestinians is, quote, a textbook case of genocide, textbook genocide. And he cites the U.N.'s definition of genocide. 
Well, the UN, there's a leading human rights guy in the UN himself who said that this is the yeah. definition of genocide. Absolutely. Exactly. And here's a quote from the defense minister of Israel. His name is Yoav Gallant. This, th- and he said this on October 9th. This is a quote from him, defense minister of Israel. I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. No electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. We will eliminate everything. So, so that's called cherem. You know, get to know this word, educate people about this. You know, we heard about jihad, 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 ad nauseum after 9-11, right? Why have we not heard of, of Kherim? You know, how is it that in 2004, my non-Muslim neighbor was asking me to explain taqiyah, but in 2023, most of us have no idea about Kherim or Amalek. I'll get to that shortly. Yeah. How is it? How is it that, you know, for several years after 9-11, whenever I would participate in interfaith dialogues, I was constantly questioned, accosted, bombarded in several churches by non-Muslims about jihad, and yet we are still ignorant of Kherim and Amalek. Mm-hmm. Why don't we know these concepts? I remember once in a Q&A session, a, a man started debating me about jihad. He was a Christian. He wanted me, uh, he actually wanted to correct me about jihad. So I said to him, I'll explain jihad when you can explain Kherim. And he looked at me really puzzled, and he said, what's that? And I just said, wow, that's strange. Ajib. I mean, he wanted, he wanted to correct me concerning an Islamic concept, something found in my religion, but he never even heard of a concept in his own religion, his own scripture, his own tradition. So I think it's time to push back a little bit. It's time for us to demand answers, right? It's time to expose the double standard in a more robust, sophisticated, and academic way. You know, the present policy cannot be the new normal because what is happening to the Palestinians right now is sheer terrorism, You know how they talk about radical Islam. Zionism, as deployed by Israel, is radical Judaism. Palestinian civilians are victims of religious extremists, really on both sides, but especially from the radical Jews, from radical Judaism for almost 80 years. I mean, this history goes back to 1917, way before October 7th. But it, it's actually having ramifications way beyond uh, the Middle East. In, in, in mm-hmm. France at the moment, for the French Senate, it's been proposed as a law by the French senators to outlaw any criticism of Israel. Mm-hmm. The revised old law from the 19th century explicitly yeah. said, let's revive this law where to insult um, uh, the nation of Israel is punishable up to uh, certain years in prison. This is the country that, after the, the terrible Charlie Hebdo uh, attack, mm-hmm. said, we have, a, we have absolute free speech, yeah. you have a right yeah. to the prophet in his right to blaspheme God. And, you know, the, the same, you know, president was saying, you know, blaspheme, blasphemy is a right to Frenchman, but you can't mm. criticize Israel. You might go. So there's this extraordinary inconsistency yeah. here uh, in privileging certain behaviors, uh, you know, allowing the defamation of the prophet and Islam, yeah. but, but prohibiting any criticism of, of is extraordinary twisted yeah. going on here. Um, and, and I think there's a theological reason for that, too. And I'll, and I'll get to that. I'm, I'm going to come to that um, in, in a minute. But the, the, I want to quote this verse from the Quran. وَمِنْ أَجْلِ ذَلِكَ كَتَبْنَا عَلَى بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ أَنَّهُ مَنْ قَتَلَ النَّفْسًا بِغَيْرِ نَفْسٍ أَوْ فَسَادٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ فَكَأَنَّمَا قَتَلَ النَّاسَ جَمِيعًا وَمَنْ أَحْيَاهَا فَكَأَنَّمَا أَحْيَا النَّاسَ جَمِيعًا uh, وَلَقَدْ جَاءَتْهُمْ رَسُولُنَا بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ ثُمَّ إِنَّ كَثِيرًا مِنْهُمْ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ فِي الْأَرْضِ لَمُسْرِفُونَ So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, He says that we ordained upon the children of Israel that whoever kills another person without, without that person having killed another person uh, or, or um, for spreading corruption in the land. In other words, whoever murders another person unjustly, uh, it is as if he's killed the, the whole of humanity. 
And whoever saves another, whoever saves a life, it is as if he's saved all of humanity. Indeed, we sent, uh, um, indeed, our messengers came with clear signs. But many of them after this were extremists. So right here in the Quran, here's the difference between traditional Judaism. This is 532, Al-Ma'idah verse 32 of the Quran. This is the difference right here between traditional Judaism and radical Judaism. In this ayah, everything is in the Quran. So this special intent on genocide is in full display. When you listen to Israeli politicians and, and military officers, right? These Zionist hijackers of Judaism, these, these Jewish radicals. The official IDF spokesman, his name is Daniel Hagari. He said, quote, the emphasis is on damage, not on accuracy. So you know, this is defensive. This is minimizing collateral damage. No, the intention is to maximize collateral damage. He admits it. The former prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, when, when he was asked about Palestinian babies in hospital incubators who need electricity to survive, this is what he said. This is a direct quote. Are you seriously talking about Palestinian civilians? We are fighting Nazis. I'm not feeding electricity or water to my enemies. That's how he put it. I'm not feeding electricity or water to my enemies. I'm just quoting. And then you mentioned also a top UN official, uh, Craig McIver. He just resigned. He was the director of the New York office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Here's a quote from him. He said, quote, the, whole, the current wholesale slaughter of the Palestinian people rooted in an ethno-nationalist, rooted in an ethno-nationalist colonial, colonial settler ideology in continuation of, of decades of their systematic persecution and purging based entirely upon their status as Arabs and coupled with explicit statements of intent by leaders in the Israeli government and military leaves no room for doubt. He means that it's a genocide. He continues, what's more, the governments of the United States, United Kingdom, and much of Europe are wholly complicit in the horrific assault, end quote. Now, what's interesting is that modern anti-Zionist activists have been recently citing studies that demonstrate that uh, Levantine Arabs, including Palestinian Arabs, have genetic continuity with the ancient Canaanites. In other words, they are descendants of Canaanites. Why are anti-Zionists highlighting these studies? Well, this relates to this debate about the land, who was there first, right? As, like as one Zionist put it, he said the word Jew comes from Judea, the, the word Arab comes from Arabia, so who's occupying whose land? In other words, the Jews were there first. But now these recent studies are being cited to show that the Palestinians are actually descendants of the ancient Canaanites who were there before the Israelites. Even Philip Jenkins says this, uh, it's without doubt that the Palestinians yeah, he, he, are descendants right. of the Canaanites. He, he, he just said yeah. that. But the thing is, like, I, I don't know. I mean, you can imagine how this argument can actually embolden these religious Zionists of Israel. You know, you see, they admit they're Canaanites and it's our duty to wipe them out, according to mitzvah number 528. Now, there are two more mitzvot that deserve our immediate attention. And I'm almost done here. Just a few more minutes. Um, mitzvah number 604. So this is based on Deuteronomy 25, 19. Cut off the seed of Amalek. Okay. That is destroy them utterly. Commit cherem against Amalek. And number 605, based on the same verse, blot out the memory of Amalek and don't forget Amalek. So extremist messianic Israeli settlers often invoke Amalek as a justification for the massacre and displacement of the Palestinian people. And by the way, just the other day, the Israeli authorities in the West Bank were literally passing out assault rifles to Israeli settlers. I don't know if you saw that. I mean, settlers who are illegally occupying the West Bank now have assault weapons, military grade weapons. 
but anyway, who is Amalek? So Amalek was the first nation to fight against the Israelites according to the Torah, right? So they're also called the Amalekites. So as you mentioned, 1 Samuel 15, King Saul was ordered by God to commit cherem against the Amalekites, to exterminate their men, women, and children, and animals. Total extermination. King Saul, however, spared the Amalekite king Agag. His name was Agag. Now, in the book of Esther, chapter 3, we're told that Haman, the Persian minister of Xerxes, was an Agagite. In other words, he was a descendant of Agag. In other words, he was an Amalekite. And Haman wanted to exterminate the Jews, according to Esther. So this is the MO of the Amalekites. They want to destroy Israel. Okay, now the Torah also says, it says, The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Midor Dor means from generation to generation. Forever perpetual warfare against Amalek. The Lord declares perpetual warfare against Amalek. Now, traditional, modern traditional Jews, um, they tend to interpret these commandments against Amalek on strictly genealogical grounds. In other words, any and all descendants of Amalek must be killed irrespective of their culture. This is why when it comes to the seven nations, conversion, they can actually convert and become a, a Ben Noah, you know, they follow the Noahidic laws, or they can actually convert to Judaism and become a Ben Barit. But there's difference of opinion about accepting the conversion of, a, of an Amalekite. However, many would argue, since it is impossible to identify who is a true Amalekite, this, companion, this uh, c- commandment simply cannot be fulfilled. Uh, other traditional authorities, like Maimonides, um, uh, limit the application of the mitzvah to destroy Amalek to a Jewish king. In other words, only an anointed Jewish king can carry out this mitzvah. Yet other traditional authorities maintain that the commandment only applies to the reign of the Messiah, and that this is after he's taken full possession of Eretz Israel, the covenant land or the promised land. However, common among Jewish Zionists is this horrible teaching that the term Amalek refers to any enemy of the Jews in any generation. You know, it's the mindset of Amalek. It's the mentality of Amalek. The culture of Amalek continues perpetually. So the, the Romans were the Amalek of their day. Uh, the Nazis were the Amalek of their You understand? They have yeah. to find an Amalek in every generation. Mm-hmm. There was a Jewish professor at UCLA, uh, and a Zionist, Deborah Lipstadt, who famously, famously referred to British historian of German history, David Irving, as, quote, a, a contemporary Amalek, right? In other words, he deserves to be killed for his views on history. I mean, that's basically what she's saying. This is a dog whistle. Now, mm-hmm. I recommend this book, by the way, by Ilan yeah. Abbey, an Israeli historian, uh, now teaching history at you know, X University. He's a professor, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Uh, this is a highly regarded book, very meticulously researched mm-hmm. from authentic primary sources in the IDF's own archives, no less, showing that ethnic cleansing, uh, this, this, this uh, idea of extermination, was there right from the inception, the beginning yeah. of Zionism. It's not some kind of late kind yeah. of offspring. This is right in the, the DNA of the ideology itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now, you know, guess upon whom the modern Zionists apply this designation of Amalek more than any other? Well, broadly speaking, anyone who argues for the dissolution of the modern state of Israel is an Amalek. Anyone who argues against the legality of the modern nationalistic apartheid state of Israel, apartheid even according to Nelson Mandela, uh, you know, Desmond Tutu, Jimmy Carter, 
But more specifically, Iran has been called Amalek. I mean, several days ago, the Israeli minister of economy, his name is Nir Barkat, he threatened to, quote, wipe Iran off the face of the earth. Those are his words. And then we have these neocon war hawks in our government, the American government, who have unconditional obedience to Israel, right? Who do, who do nothing but escalate the situation. And now they're recycling all of this 9-11 rhetoric, the axis of evil, all this type of thing. It's all coming back. Here's another quote. This goes back to modern Amalek, the former director of Israel Land Authority. His name is ben, uh, Benzi Lieberman. He actually said this in 2004. He's a director. So these are people in positions of power. This is a direct quote. The Palestinians are Amalek. We will destroy them, end quote. So now you understand what, what he means. I mean, he's invoking cherem, genocide of the Palestinian people. This goes back to something that you mentioned, Elon Pape, right? The, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. This is called Plan Dalet, Plan Dalet in 1947. That's right. That's the Hebrew D, yeah, Plan D. The Hebrew D, exactly, Plan D, state-enacted Israeli terrorism. So these are religious extremists drunk on messianic fervor. They're trying to inaugurate, they're trying to inaugurate their messianic age with a massive human sacrifice. This is really evil stuff here. You know what? And I, I truly believe this. I truly believe that Jewish people who are good and just and compassionate, I truly believe from the bottom of my heart that when the real Messiah comes, they will believe in him and follow him. Now, now, Paul, I, I mentioned some of these. I mentioned some of these things about Amalek um, uh, over a week ago. Uh, and then the, the very next day, Bibi himself, right? The Prime oh, Minister of Israel. Prime mm. Minister of Israel. You must remember what Amalek has done to you. Another dog whistle. I mean, the initiated know, knows what he means, right? But now we know what he means. Uh, um, yeah, we know it. You know what it means. I know what it means. I'm just shocked at how, mm. how few people in the Western media have bothered to report this at all. Like the BBC. Yeah, amazing. Or- uh, it's just like, it's just not interesting. Why mention it? But of hmm. course, it says a dog whistle. For those who know the Bible, for Jews who are well versed in the the yeah. Torah, they will recognize what's been said. Then it is a it is a call to genocide. Yeah, and his appeal to their you know three thousand year legacy going back to Joshua ben Nun. Yes, we know what the Tanakh says about what Joshua did. He implemented Cherem upon the ancient Canaanites, right? So this guy, you know Netanyahu, he he even blamed the Holocaust on the Palestinians. This was years ago. Yes, I, remember. I mean, normal, um, Norman Finkelstein, he said that this claim is, quote, beyond lunacy. I mean, he blamed the Holocaust on the Palestinians. I mean, he's out of his mind. But what else does the Torah say about Amalek? This is what it says. It says, Timche et zekor Amalek metachat hashemayim. So that's Deuteronomy 25, 19. In Arabic, it says, You must blot out the very mention of Amalek from under the sun. So right now, as you said, in Western public discourse, there is a disturbing trend. Any defense, any defense of the Palestinian people is being branded as supporting terrorism and anti-Semitic. It's a two for one now. Why this trend? Well, it seems like it seems to me the remembrance of Amalek, the very mention of Amalek must be blotted out. And for these uh, you know, Zionist extremists and zealots, Palestine is Amalek. And Western media is totally controlled by Zionist propaganda. So now just having a Palestinian flag is seen as supporting terrorism and hating Jews. I mean, people are losing their jobs across multiple industries for uttering even a word of support for Palestinian lives, for for speaking out against the carpet bombing of civilians. Meanwhile, right now in Palestine, Palestinian families are debating about whether they should all stay in one place or to split up. 
because if they split up and, and Israel drops bombs, at least their entire family won't be killed. This is what Palestinians are doing right now. This is their discussion over the dinner table. This is what a guy is he's sitting there with his wife, wife and children. This is what they're discussing. And of course, the Zionists, you know, they release fake images, fake recordings. Look up the Hannibal Directive. God knows what they can do with AI. It's all tricksterism. They have to manufacture consent. I mean, look, just read the book of Genesis. I invite people, read Genesis, okay? The person of Jacob in the book of Genesis. This is in the Torah. This is not the Quran. In Genesis, Jacob is a master trickster who no matter what he does, God continues to bless him. He has unconditional divine support for his deception. And Jacob is... People, I mean, I, I actually read the book of Genesis uh, again uh, in this version, the mm. Jewish study Bible, uh, Tanakh, published by Oxford University uh, Press. Um, and uh, this is interesting because it, it, this is, uh, you know, 200 or so top Jewish scholars, experts in the Hebrew yeah. Bible, uh, is, uh, translated and the commentary as well. So you get fascinating insights, the Jewish understanding of the Bible, rather than mm-hmm. reading the Old Testament through Christian eyes, which I've, what I've always mm-hmm. done before. Now reading the Jewish Bible through yeah. Jewish eyes. Hey, that's an idea. Um, but what you're saying about Jacob being a trickster, uh, they're, they're very blunt about this. Uh, and yeah. but this, this is somehow uh, accepted and part of the, the glorious. Uh, what you're saying is pretty accurate, but the shocking story, the, the lack of morality shown by yeah seminal foundational patriarchs of, of what yeah. became Israel exactly. is quite shocking and the amorality of it. Yeah, yeah. And of course Jacob is Israel. And Jacob at the end of at Israel. the end of the book of Yeah, exactly. That's his name. At the end of the book of Genesis, even Jacob's son Joseph ends up tricking the Egyptians. He tricks them and ends up enslaving them. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't remember reading that in the Quran about Yusuf Salam. The Quran corrects these narratives. But yeah. Genesis, as you said, this is the primary text of Judaism. And as they say, if such are the clergy, then God bless the congregation, right? If, if one of their greatest patriarchs described in their most sacred book, who is also the namesake of their nation, yeah. was a master trickster, what do we expect from Zionist Israel? And then we have, we have so, these... So just one quick thing, which I remember, this is, this, is, this is a study based on the historical critical method. So you hear trained yeah. historians, yeah. Uh, scriptural scholars, they're not fundamentalists. Hmm. And yet when they started to mention Abraham or Abraham, who became Abraham, name change, he is referred to repeatedly as a Jew, as an Israelite. Yeah. Now, <laughs> if you read Genesis, you'll realize that Israel or Jacob uh, was a historical figure that came much, much later. Yeah. Abraham was not a Jew. He was yeah. not an Israelite. But any st- this is anachronism, and anachronism yeah. is a sin, if you like, an intellectual sin in historical methodology. You don't mm-hmm. import later ideas back into the text. Yeah. That's precisely what they have done yeah. in this yeah. university critical edition of the Jewish Weird. Study Bible. Strange. Make it up. Uh, that they, they're basically owning Abraham for themselves. And what does the Quran say? Well, you can tell, t- tell us. What does the Quran say about Abraham? Yeah. Exactly. Abraham was not a Jew or a Christian. You're right. It's anachronism. He was, he was, he, he was uh, a, a Muslim in the sense that he submitted his will to God and a monotheist. And he certainly did not associate partners with God. You know, it's just it's just so amazing. And then you have, you know, all these kind of gullible and cowardly people who say, you know, this is not the same as Hiroshima or Nagasaki. 
in Hiroshima, the express purpose was to target civilians. But in Palestine, the Israeli military says that they don't intend to kill civilians. It just happens on accident. So it's okay. I mean, just absolute nonsense. And I mean, how disturbing is this? I mean, according to that logic, I mean, Israel could kill 10,000 children, 20,000 children, in theory, a million children, and just say, oh, that was not our intention. You know, so for these, these cowardly apologists for Israel, my question is, you know, when will it be enough for you to grow a backbone and condemn Israel? How many more children have to be cut to pieces? How many whole families have to be taken off the planet before you grow a backbone and condemn what is obviously a genocide? And, and I'll end with this. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he said, dua silah al-mu'min, right? He said that prayer, supplication is the weapon of the believer. And there may be some weakness in this chain, but it's true in its meaning. So let's pray for the people of Gaza. Let's pray for their souls. Pray for ourselves. The Quran says, Qu anfusukum. Qu anfusukum ahlikum naran. Save yourselves mm. from, and your families from the fire. I mean, deception is everywhere. I mean, really, it's just, it's, I mean, the Western media is gaslighting the world. I mean, the, the oppressed are depicted as the oppressors and vice versa. It's almost like the world is under a spell. Mm-hmm. Again, very I mean, the Prophet used to pray. There's a beautiful dua. He said, Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna ittiba'a. So he said, Oh God, show us the truth as truth and give us the ability to follow it. Wa And show us falsehood as falsehood and give us the ability to shun it. And, and this dua is so crucial for us today. Right. So just to the viewers, ask, ask God to give you the ability to see through the smoke and mirrors. There's a hadith uh, in the Sunan of Abu Dawood. The Prophet وسلم, said, Man the Prophet said, let him who hears of the imposter Messiah keep a distance from him. I swear by Allah that a man will come to him thinking he's a firm believer and then end up following the, the imposter Messiah because of confused ideas roused in him by the Dajjal. I mean, the, the imposter Messiah, the tribulation of the imposter Messiah is sharru fitnatin, is the worst of tribulations. You know, and, and so this is very serious business and we have to take care of ourselves. The, the, the Abu Huraira, he said, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم يَتَعَوَّذُ مِنْ عَذَابِ جَهَنَّمُ وَعَذَابِ الْقَبْرُ وَالْمَسِيحَةِ الدَّجَالِ The Messenger of God used to seek refuge in Allah from the punishment of hell, the punishments of the grave, and from the imposter Messiah. So protect yourselves against the Antichrist. Hold fast to the Kitab and Sunnah. A lot of Muslims are confused right now. They're in a state of hayra. It's a confusion and chaos. But we also have a Dalalatul Ha'irin. We also have a guide for the perplexed. And it's a better guide. With all due respect to the Rambam, it's Al-Kitab Sunnah. Right? We have the Quran, we have the Sunnah. Hold fast to the the rope, you know, the, the, the lifeline that God extends. And that's the Quran according to the hadith. Alaykum bisunnati, the Prophet said, right? He said, hold fast to my sunnah. Establish the prayer. This is very important, right? If, if we're not praying five times a day, there's, there's major issues. We need to establish the prayer. Uh, we need to pray, make dua for our brethren. So I'll just, I'll just end with this, this dua, this prayer. It's very short. And, and this is our weapon. This is our weapon. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adabi jahannam wa min adabi al-qabr wa min fitnati al-mahya wal-mamat wa min sharri fitnati al-masih al-dajjal. So, I mean, so the Prophet said, Oh God, I seek refuge. 
uh, in you from the punishment of hell and from the punishment of the grave and from the tribulations of life and death and from the evil of the tribulations of the imposter Messiah. Wallahu musta'an. So may God, uh, may God forgive all of us. May God raise up our states. May, uh, may God um, alleviate the, the pain uh, and, the, um, and the misery of, of the Muslims around the world. And may God educate us and give us istiqamah. May he give us this uprightness in the religion and courage uh, to, to, to speak the truth without fear. Inshallah. I mean, thank you so much, Paul. Thank you very much, Dr. Ali Atai. Uh, very interesting, harrowing, but necessary, um, you know, commentary and discussion of these uh, extra extraordinary texts, which are not very well known, particularly these texts yeah. of terror, if you like, in, in the yeah. Jewish scriptures. And nothing like that in the Quran, of course, um, and not well known, but they mm. are being utilized, recycled, alluded to, dog whistled, as you put it. Mm. Um, it this is ongoing, um, and many right. people in the West don't seem to know about this because the media don't amplify explore investigate they're always boasting how they're investigating things we don't mention these things right. but they're there if you just look at them they're not hidden really um so yeah this is the, the shocking uh story and obviously uh we'll, we'll keep uh, a prayer for lie on all these things and yeah so thank you once again dr elliot thank for you time. And it's always a pleasure and an education. You have a huge following on blogging theology. Um, and I'm sure everyone will benefit from what you say. So thank you Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Paul. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.